welcome to the Hidden Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, John Blassingame. Today we're going to be discussing a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now before I get into discussing anything about his past or why he's important to talk about, I want to start with a quote. This was written from Bonhoeffer's cell in Tegel Prison on July 21st, 1944. He says this, I remember a conversation that I had in America 13 years ago with a young French pastor. We were asking ourselves quite simply what we wanted to do with our lives. He said he would like to become a saint, and I think it's quite likely that he did become one. At the time, I was very impressed, but I disagreed with him and said, in effect, that I should like to learn to have faith. For a long time, I didn't realize the depth of the contrast. I thought I could acquire faith by trying to live a holy life or something like it. I discovered later, and I'm still discovering right up to this moment, that it is only by living completely in this world that one learns to have faith. In doing so, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God, taking seriously not our own sufferings, but those of God in the world. I'm glad to have been able to learn this, and I know I've been able to do so only along the road that I've traveled, so I'm grateful for the past and present and content with them. May God in his mercy lead us through these times, but above all, may he lead us to himself. Now, as you listen to me read this quote, I wonder if you can describe in just a few words the way in which Bonhoeffer presents himself. Does he sound optimistic? Does he sound resigned to his fate? I'm inclined to think that he sounds the latter. This quote almost reads like an autobiography or a eulogy. It's almost as if Bonhoeffer recognizes and realizes that his demise is forthcoming, having been held in Tegel prison for a number of months now and feels the need to mark the occasion of July 21st, 1944, with a few special words to his friend, Eberhard Bethke. Now, again, Bonhoeffer wrote this statement, this paragraph here, on July 21st, 1944, from his cell in Tegel prison. And my assumption is that he probably knew his demise was forthcoming, because only one day prior, on July 20th, 1944, a group of co-conspirators who had attempted to assassinate the Chancellor of Germany, Adolf Hitler, and install a new regime had failed in their plot to do so. This plot is actually captured in a film uh, done by Tom Cruise. The film is known as Valkyrie. And Bonhoeffer himself was connected with this plot. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor, the reformer, and the Christian must have been hoping that this assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler's life would succeed, its success would likely mean his release from Tegel prison. However, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again the pastor, the reformer, and the Christian, must have known by July 21st, 1944, that his fate was sealed because he had thrown in his lot with the schemers. This is an important idea. How is it that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, how is it that this man threw in his lot with conspirators? This is an important question, and I'll touch on it later in the podcast, but for now, I would just like to arrive at a point at which we can ask appropriately a couple of questions about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. One, who was he? What, he? what had he accomplished in his life? What was his life about? Second, what did he believe? What is so important about Dietrich Bonhoeffer that scholarship exists to study his thought and his ideas today? And third, what is his legacy? That is, what, in studying Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 
can we learn about ourselves and what can we take to move forward into the future and possibly create better lives for ourselves and others. So let's jump into a discussion about the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was born in 1906 to a somewhat aristocratic German family. His father was a noted psychologist in Germany, and his mother had family ties that connected her with German high society. I like the way that Eberhard Betke describes Bonhoeffer's upbringing. He says this, The rich world of his ancestors set the standards for Dietrich Bonhoeffer's own life. It gave him a certainty of judgment and manner that cannot be acquired in a single generation. He grew up in a family that believed the essence of learning lay not in a formal education, but in the deeply rooted obligation to be guardians of a great historical heritage and intellectual tradition. So Bonhoeffer grew up with high expectations of who he would one day be. But he also grew up in a time marked by political and international turmoil for the German people. I think it's fairly accurate to say that during Bonhoeffer's childhood, the German people were going through a time characterized by nationalism, but also characterized by national turmoil. Um, he lived his formative years from the age 8 to 12 over the course of World War I. Bonhoeffer was 8 when World War I began in 1914, and he was 12 years old when it ended in 1918. It's difficult to come to terms with the shock that he, as well as the rest of the German people, possibly endured following the defeat of their country during the First World War. Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself lost a brother named Walter, and Germany as a nation lost its dignity. This once proud people must have watched in horror as their heritage collapsed. So Eric Maria Remarque writes a book called All Quiet on the Western Front. And in this book, he discusses the mood that characterized the German youth who would carry the brunt of the burden for fighting in World War I. Now, Eric Maria Remarque conveys a sense of despair and despondency in the minds of these youth as they return from their defeat in World War I. I think that despair and despondency is captured in a quote, which I'm going to read right here. He says this, Had we returned, being, had the soldiers returned in 1916, two years into the war, out of the suffering and strength of our experience, we might have unleashed a storm. But now, toward the end of the war, if we go back, we will be weary, broken, burnt out, rootless, and without hope. We will not be able to find our way anymore. So again, this is Remarque writing on the sense of despair that characterized the younger generation of German soldiers following their defeat in World War I. And I think there's a number of factors that we need to consider when it comes to uh, Germany post-World War I. That's that, as Remarque mentions and makes clear in his writing, the group of soldiers who had carried the brunt of the burden for fighting the war coming home from the front lines of battle, their mood was largely characterized by a sense of disillusionment. And the second consideration that we need to uh, discuss here is that there's potentially an internal rift going on in Germany following World War I that's creating a sense of turmoil for the German people. And that internal rift is this. The older generation 
which did not carry the brunt of the workload during the war, must have viewed the younger and defeated generation, which again carried the brunt, carried the burden of fighting the war. This older generation must have viewed the younger generation as, in a sense, the shame of the nation. Now, this might have created a sense of alienation within the various generations of German people, overall creating a sense of disunity amongst the German people. And this disunity following World War I created the soil that was ripe for some kind of unifying central factor to come in and unite the German people around a common cause. Third, and lastly, the Treaty of Vienna, which sealed the German people's fate following World War I, essentially blamed Germany for the devastation of the war and placed the onus of making amends at the expense of the German people, vice the other forces that were actually at play in fighting in the war. Now this probably created a sense of animosity, international animosity, for the German people viewing the rest of the world. These three factors, the sense of disillusionment among the German youth, the multi-generational sense of disunity, again, between the older generation and the younger generation Germans, and lastly, the sense of international resentment of the German people toward the other countries that fought in the First World War, created a situation in which it was ripe for a new power to emerge and that new power could promise the German people a number of items. One, he could promise the restoration, potentially, of hope to the younger generation Germans, who again had become disillusioned following the war. Second, this rising power had an opportunity to address the multi-generational disunity, again, that characterized the relationship between the older and younger generation Germans, potentially bringing uni unification to the disunity by pointing the attention of the German people away from their internal problems and toward their international resentment, toward their international problems. And this leads me into the third factor, the third opportunity that a central rising factor, a central rising being in Germany could take advantage of, and that's this. The German people thirsted for revenge following the demands of the Treaty of Vienna, and by pointing the German people away from their inner problems toward their external animosity and promising the German people the quench of their thirst for revenge, this rising power in Germany could take advantage of the resentment that characterized the German people at the time and bring unity to a disunified nation. Now this rising power, if you don't know already, was Adolf Hitler and Germany's National Socialist Party, or the Nazis. Again, these factors, among others, probably provided the opportunity for this rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party in Germany. But these opportunities also provided the bedrock and potentially some of the driving factors which would ultimately lead into World War II. Now, amidst all of this, what was going on with Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself? Well, post-World War I, in 1924 that is, Bonhoeffer commenced his study of theology at the University of Berlin. And at the age of 21, he received his first doctorate degree 
from said university. Following his studies at the University of Berlin, Bonhoeffer spent some time pastoring a German congregation in Spain, as well as doing a number of other things. But the critical year for Bonhoeffer's life, I think, as we examine it briefly, is 1930. In 1930, it appears that Bonhoeffer entered a stage in his life which would be marked by true spiritual transformation. Now, in 1930, Dietrich Bonhoeffer traveled to New York on a teaching fellowship. In New York, he would study under a man known as Reinhold Niebuhr at Union Theological Seminary. Now, Reinhold Niebuhr, um, in Bonhoeffer's eyes, did not have a super strong Christology. His theology was not super well known, again, for its Christology. But what Bonhoeffer grew an appreciation for as he studied under Niebuhr was the social understanding of Christianity. That is, if Christianity has no lived impact in society, what does the religion matter, period? Now, this understanding of the social impact of Christianity would mark Bonhoeffer's life when he returns to Germany in just a few years and faces some of the problems that Hitler's policies had created in German society. But there are a number of other things that happened in Bonhoeffer's life as he spent time in the United States around the year 1930, and that's this. For one, Bonhoeffer grew an appreciation for the Christianity that was portrayed in African-American churches. Now, I would imagine that he witnessed something of the way in which Christian hope through these churches and in these communities could inspire an oppressed people as African-Americans were very much oppressed during the 1930s in the United States. And this is something that probably also impacted Bonhoeffer as he traveled back to Germany following his time in the 1930s, where he would witness similar, though not identical, racial oppression of Jewish people in Germany. Bonhoeffer potentially carried this spirit, the spirit of Christian hope, which he learned in African-American communities in the 1930s in the United States, with him as he ventured back to a scene in Germany, again, where the similar oppression was occurring. Now, there's a third and final factor that influenced Bonhoeffer in his spiritual transformation in the United States in the early 1930s. Now, this factor might be the most important factor, and it's this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer developed a friendship with a French pastor named Jean Lasserre. Now, in and of itself, this is kind of an ironic relationship. The German and French people had just fought each other in World War I. And as we know, looking back on history, they would again fight each other in World War II. But at the time, because of the situations in which they found themselves, Bonhoeffer was able to develop somewhat of a close relationship with this French pastor. And what happened in the course of this relationship was that Lasserre actually challenged Bonhoeffer's understanding of discipleship. Now, he did this by challenging Bonhoeffer's understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, which you can find in the New Testament book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. Bonhoeffer must have come from a traditional Lutheran understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, which is this. Jesus, in the course of the sermon, essentially raises humanity's standard of righteousness in such a way that reveals to us just how short we fall of God's standard of righteousness. This is in keeping with the Apostle Paul's statement um, in his letter to the church at Rome, in which he discusses how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Lutheran understanding of the Sermon on the Mount 
falls more along the lines of the commands that Jesus teaches, they're not meant to be followed in too precise manner. It, the burden for following this, these commands do not necessarily fall on us. The commands themselves simply reveal to us just how far short we fall of God's righteous standards. Jean Lasserre, the French pastor on the other hand, embraced a non-Lutheran or non-traditional Lutheran understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. He embraced it more literally. That is this, the Sermon on the Mount existed to be lived out in the Christian life. So Lasserre has a more literal approach to the Sermon on the, on the Mount and believes that the tenets proposed by Jesus in this sermon are meant to be lived out in the lives of Christians. So for instance, if you look at Jesus's, you have heard it was said statements in Matthew 5. For example, you've heard it, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lacerda would take a statement like this and embrace it literally. He doesn't simply embrace the statement as a means of revealing to him how, fa how far short he falls of some transcendent standard of righteousness. He rather looks at the statement and takes it to heart. And he's going to apply the Sermon on the Mount to develop some kind of internal righteousness or practice some kind of internal righteousness, if not develop it for himself. Now, Lasserre's simple reading of the Sermon on the Mount must have influenced Bonhoeffer, in some way at least, because five years later, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called, in English, The Cost of Discipleship. And this book has Lasserre's fingerprints all over it from what we know. So this is actually a good point for us to discuss Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. Now, I know I'm going to be jumping ahead just a few years in Bonhoeffer's life in doing this, but the ideas connect. But basically, Bonhoeffer wrote The Cost of Discipleship amidst a context in which Hitler had already been in power in Germany for several years. The year is 1935 in which Bonhoeffer writes this book. Hitler came to be Chancellor of Germany in 1933. You now, Hitler has, by 1935, pressed the people of Germany to publicly ostracize Jewish citizens. He's also pressed the Christian church to relinquish its freedoms to the state to the point that churchmen across the nation have divided themselves into two camps, the German church and the confessing church, both of which, in Bonhoeffer's eyes, have major faults, despite the fact that Bonhoeffer threw in his lot with the confessing church. Now, the German church essentially pledged allegiance to Hitler himself, and Bonhoeffer would not. He was not willing to do that. The confessing church, unlike the German church, did stand against Hitler when it came to the subject of church autonomy. It did not want the church to be ruled by the state. However, in Bonhoeffer's eyes, in Bonhoeffer's eyes the confessing church did not do enough to stand against Hitler's demands and the Nazi party's demands that Germany publicly ostracize Jewish citizens. Bonhoeffer would have liked the Confessing Church to do more to stand against that rather than simply the question of church autonomy. And this is critical because in the cost of discipleship, Bonhoeffer makes a critical statement about the fact that following Christ is not something that comes easily. There's a sacrifice involved, just like there would have been a sacrifice for German people to accept rather than ostracize Jewish citizens. 
But what does Bonhoeffer see as he looks out at the surrounding culture? He arguably sees a people who have all but removed Christ from both their churches and their communities. This is easily seen in the German church, which, unlike the Confessing Church, did submit to Hitler's rule, despite claiming to still be a church itself. This German church would have paid Christ's lip service without living out his commandments. And this is the type of Christianity that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wants to avoid. In a sense, in Bonhoeffer's terms themselves, this German church wanted cheap grace, but failed to realize that the only type of grace available to them was costly grace. Now, I'm going to get in a little bit more to cheap grace and, and costly grace, but I want to get into the idea that Jean Lasserre's insights into the Sermon on the Mount are actually imprinted in some of Bonhoeffer's writings in his book known as The Cost of Discipleship. Lasserre challenged the framework, again, by which Bonhoeffer and his traditional Lutheran understanding of the Sermon on the Mount must have viewed those passages in the book of Matthew. That is, what if Jesus actually expected his followers to live in accordance with the tenets he laid out in the sermon? This is the view that Bonhoeffer arguably came to adopt in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. The fact that Bonhoeffer took this critique to heart is evidenced in that book, The Cost of Discipleship, with the distinction that he makes between cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace is Bonhoeffer's term for non-transformative grace. In a sense, it's justification without the crucifixion, or forgiveness without the atonement. It's Christian doctrine divorced from Christ. And cheap grace results in a type of Christianity that cannot provide an answer to the Apostle Paul's question, shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Cheap grace would say, yes, we can continue to sin. We can do whatever we want to because forgiveness is free for us. But that does not adequately revere the sacrifice that Jesus had paid in order to grant grace to his followers. Costly grace, in Bonhoeffer's terms, is opposed to cheap grace in that it leads to an entirely new type of an existence. This new type of an existence is marked by more of a radical decision to follow some of the tenets and the commandments that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount. This grace costly grace recognizes the price that God paid to redeem his creation from the bondage of sin, and it results in a determination to walk worthy of the sacrifice he provided. Costly grace cannot be separated from the obedience that strives to apply Jesus's instruction from the Sermon on the Mount. And this type of grace, costly grace, is the prerequisite to true discipleship. So at this point, I want to move away from Bonhoeffer's work as presented in the English translation of the book known as Nachfolg, or The Cost of Discipleship, and move in again to Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life, his biography. But I want to do that in light of the question that we've already asked in discussing The Cost of Discipleship, and that is how did Bonhoeffer himself take to heart the Sermon on the Mount? How did he practice what he preached, so to speak? and live out this radical call to discipleship. Well, on one hand, as I've already mentioned, Bonhoeffer stood with the confessing church against Hitler's ecclesiastical intrusion. Bonhoeffer would not allow that one could profess Christianity and still submit to Hitler's demands 
and Hitler's authority. But as I've also mentioned, as time progressed and matters worsened, Dietrich Bonhoeffer became convinced that he must do more than resist in the form of dogmatic protest. He must do more than simply fight the battle for autonomy in the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer must take action, and he must do so specifically with regard to some of the more social problems that were occurring in Germany at the time. And that's the fact that the Jewish people, along with several other groups of people, were being ostracized from German society and made to suffer for factors they could not control. Between the years 1933, when Hitler came to power, and 1943, when Bonhoeffer landed in prison, Bonhoeffer experienced somewhat of a mental transformation. This mental transformation is actually what marks Bonhoeffer's self-understanding that he must do more than resist in the form of dogmatic protest. He must take action. But again, early on, when Hitler first came to power, Bonhoeffer thought it would be enough for him to simply be involved in resistance in a polemical sense, which he did with the Confessing Church. But again, as I've mentioned previously, Bonhoeffer did not believe that the Confessing Church did enough to stand against racial ostracism. This is demonstrated by the way that the Confessing Church responded to what was called Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass, in 1938. And just to explain Kristallnacht, I'm, I'm going to read from a couple of sources. One is a Holocaust encyclopedia, and then one is from a woman named Ruth Finkelman, who actually witnessed the event. But reading from the encyclopedia first, just to get an idea of what, what happened on uh, Kristallnacht in 1938. It says this, On the night of November 9th to 10th, 1938, the Nazi regime coordinated a wave of anti-Semitic violence in Nazi Germany. This became known as Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. It was named for the shattered glass from store windows that littered the streets, after the violence. The violence was supposed to look like an unplanned outburst of anger against Jews. In fact, Nazi leaders actively coordinated it with Adolf Hitler's support. On the night of November 9th, they ordered members of the Nazi party's paramilitaries, the SS, the SA, and the Hitler Youth, to attack Jewish communities. In the hours and days that followed, organized groups of Nazis wreaked havoc on Jewish life in Germany. They burned hundreds of synagogues, they vandalized thousands of Jewish-owned businesses, shattering the glass in storefronts. They damaged Jewish cemeteries and homes. Nazi leaders told the police and fire brigades to ignore the attacks. Police forces did not protect Jews or their property. Fire brigades did not put out fires in the synagogues. Hundreds of Jews died during Kristallnacht and its aftermath. And just to get an idea of what this was event, what this event was like from a first-hand perspective, I'm going to read from Ruth Winkleman real quick. She says this, That's where we heard what had been going on in Berlin during the night, that Jewish shops had been smashed up and people brutally killed. Shop windows had been broken everywhere, and the words Jew or Jewish pig written in many places. We were all very frightened, and on that day, for the first time since I'd started attending that school in 1934, there were prayers. It was a Jewish school, but not an Orthodox religious one. So in November of 1938, we have a very difficult situation happen for the Jewish people in Germany. And this situation arguably marked the government's stance against the Jewish people as a whole. And as I mentioned earlier, Bonhoeffer's discontent with the Confessing Church's response to the racial ostracism that was going on in Germany at the time 
essentially reaches its climax with the Confessing Church's response to Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass in November 1938. And that's this. The Confessing Church did nothing. They did not issue a response. They continued the battle for church autonomy without making a statement on the racial ostracism that was going on in Germany at the time. And Bonhoeffer was not okay with this. And it's interesting, uh, Dr. Lori Brandt Hale actually mentions in a talk that I heard recently that after the event, after this Kristallnacht in 1938, a Bonhoeffer reader can notice a shift in Bonhoeffer's themes if you read his works chronologically. After 1938, he changes his language from talking about loving one's enemies to taking responsible action. I can only imagine what was going on in Bonhoeffer's mind at the time, frustrated with the confessing church and their last lack of response to Kristallnacht, and motivated by the idea that something must be done to control or prevent the evil that was spreading in Germany, Bonhoeffer begins to adopt a different mindset. That is, he begins to think that the solution to the problem in Germany is not polemical in, anymore. It's rather covert. We can catch a glimpse into his mindset through an essay he wrote in 1943 called After Ten Years. This essay essentially categorizes and catalogs Bonhoeffer's experience from the years 1933 to 1943 in which he reflects on some of the things that he, as well as some other important individuals in his life, had learned throughout the course of those ten years. But I'll just draw on a quote from this essay real quick. Bonhoeffer writes this, who stands his ground? Only the man whose ultimate criterion is not in his reason, his principles, his conscience, his freedom, or his virtue, but who is ready to sacrifice all these things when he's called to obedience and responsible action in faith and exclusive allegiance to God. The responsible man seeks to make his whole life a response to the question and call of God. Now for Bonhoeffer, responsible action the action he would take as this responsible man is somewhat controversial, particularly when we consider certain aspects of his identity. Again, as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, as a pastor, as a reformer, and as a Christian, Bonhoeffer would have desired peace, and it is not quite obvious that he would have thought that violence is a means of achieving that peace. And that's why it's a bit strange and a bit perplexing but nonetheless moving that Bonhoeffer ended up throwing in his lot with those members of the Valkyrie plot, again, which failed on July 20th, 1944. Bonhoeffer, as a member of German intelligence, took advantage of the permissions he had to travel outside Germany and acted as an emissary between core members of the German resistance and the Allied forces. This was actually how he supported the Valkyrie plot. He sought to procure Allied terms of sur surrender in the event that the Valkyrie plot succeeded in actually overthrowing Hitler's regime and establishing a new one. And as a pastor involved in this conspiracy, he actually acted as sort of a moral background for members of the resistance. Members of the resistance, many of whom were military individuals, were breaking their military oaths and committing treason and joining the resistance. Now, understandably, this would have ignited and sparked some inner moral turmoil for these individuals. They were committing an act of treason. They were betraying their country, and they needed a source of moral support. And as a pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was able to 
provide that moral support to them. Again, he was the moral background. He was able to tell them that they were acting for the sake of the greater good precisely because he was studied, essentially, in understanding God's will. But unfortunately, Bonhoeffer could not act with impunity. In 1943, the Gestapo tapped his and a co-conspirator's telephone and, in conjunction with mounting suspicion due to other evidence, actually arrested Bonhoeffer and placed him in Tegel Prison in Berlin. Now, it's important to note that this happened in advance of Colonel Stauffenberg's assassination attempts, which again happened on July 20th, 1944. Bonhoeffer was arrested in 1943, which meant that he spent a good portion of his initial imprisonment with reason to believe that he might be released should Stauffenberg's attempt actually succeed and the Valkyrie plot succeed in overthrowing Hitler's regime. And it's over the course of these months, essentially between 1943 and mid to late 1944, that we have a collection of Bonhoeffer's thoughts that he wrote from his time in prison. His thought is preserved in some of the letters that were smuggled out of his cell in Berlin to his good friend Eberhard Bethke. And these letters contain theological themes, which provide us clues into Bonhoeffer's theology and the depth of his mind. But before we get into the themes and the thoughts that were occupying Bonhoeffer's mind while he was being held in Tegel Prison in Berlin, I think it's important to just add a general comment about Bonhoeffer's theology as a whole. And that's this. Bonhoeffer's theology is known for being Christocentric. Christocentricity is an interesting idea. And I would explain it using three general if-then statements. And that's this. Christocentricity means to the theologian that one, if you want to hear or listen to the voice of the Father, then listen first and foremost to what the Son has to say. Two, if you want to see the face or the character of God the Father, then look first and foremost at God the Son. And third and finally, if you want to know first and foremost the heart of the Father, then study what the Son has done in his act of redemption. Again, Bonhoeffer's thoughts and his theology is first and foremost, at its core, Christocentric. This means that these three statements that I just used to describe Christocentricity can also be used to describe Bonhoeffer's theology. Now, this idea of Christocentricity is quite biblical in a number of ways, one of the primary ones being found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and I'm just going to read it real quick. It says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in the last days, he has spoken, us, spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. So notice what this verse does not say. It does not say, first and foremost, that God spoke to us through the Son. This would be to say that Jesus was a prophet. And it's not that Jesus was not a prophet, but that he was more than that. Jesus was the word of God himself. Jesus, in his incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection, broadly considered, was God's message to us. It's not that Jesus did not speak God's word to us. It's that we must look at his life as the message of God itself, and his life contains the words that he spoke. 
So the idea of Christocentricity, particularly as examined in the light of this verse in Hebrews, this idea is much more expansive than simply saying that Jesus spoke God's words to us. He, was, he did more than that, or he was more than that, because he was God's word to us. And Christocentric theology centralizes on this idea in such a way that it enlightens our understanding of the Godhead by examining and studying the Son in this holistic sense. Again, if you want to see the face or the character of the Father, look at the Son. If you want to hear the voice of the Father, then listen to the Son. And if you want to know the heart of the Father, then study what the Son has done. This is the essence of Christocentric theology. Look first and foremost at the Son because he's the key to unlocking the Godhead for us. Now, moving back to Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer in his time at Tegel Prison was able to continue his Christocentric theology by viewing the, cru the crucifixion transcendently. This is to say that he supplanted the cross from its localized position in the year AD 33, where Jesus was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem, and Bonhoeffer was able to see that same crucifixion take place in 20th century Germany, where the powerless had been ostracized and the church had become more or less godless. And this concerned him. Bonhoeffer wondered what, what was to become of Christianity in a kind of culture in which God and Jesus himself was being pushed to the fringes. And Bonhoeffer writes this in one of his letters to Eberhard Betke from Tegel Prison. He says, What is bothering me incessantly is the question of what Christianity really is or indeed who Christ really is for us today. The time when people could be told everything by means of words, whether theological or pious, is over, and so is the time of inwardness and conscience, and that means the time of religion in general. We are moving towards a completely religionless time. People as they are simply cannot be religious anymore. So in Bonhoeffer's eyes, Christianity was emptying itself of religion. It was emptying itself of its traditional high status in the culture. And in light of academic discoveries, Christianity was more or less losing its ability to actually explain phenomena. And in this way, Christianity's traditional center place in culture was becoming obsolete. And God himself was, in this culture, being pushed to the fringes. For Bonhoeffer, the solution was to develop a quote-unquote religionless Christianity. We can picture this as a new type of worship or a new aim, a new idea that would serve as the heart of the Christian message. And the idea is this. Christianity, in Bonhoeffer's eyes, was more or less to renew its worship not of the powerful God, not of the God who could part the Red Seas, but of the powerless God, the God who voluntarily emptied himself within the context of religion, Bonhoeffer himself lived in a God-forsaken Germany, but it was this God who was with him in his God-forsaken time. And as such, in Bonhoeffer's mind, the cross and the crucifixion would become central to Christian understanding. And Bonhoeffer writes this, Before God and with God, we live without God. God lets himself be pushed out of the world and onto the cross. And those who would seek him in Bonhoeffer's time, and arguably even in this present day, must seek him in his weakness. As Bonhoeffer also wrote, only the suffering God can help. Only the God on the cross 
is of any relevance to the culture that has arguably pushed him there. Now, as history attests, Bonhoeffer arguably encountered this suffering God, or this God of weakness, in his own fate. He did not receive the miracle and the release and the freedom from imprisonment that he must have, or probably was hoping for. That is, on April 9th, 1945, about nine months after the posting uh, of the letter, the letter with which I began the episode, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was put to death at Flossenburg concentration camp, along with several co-conspirators. But here I want to ask the question, what became of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Because what became of him is more than the end of his life. His life lives beyond its death, and actually has, in today's world, a multifaceted legacy. And so I propose three responses to the question that I want to ask here. What became of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Or who is he for us today? The first is that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian, is an example of someone who understood the times in which he lived. He's one of those few individuals who saw through the veneer of his day and to the forces at work in shaping his society. He was a strategically minded individual capable of viewing history in spite of its complexity as a comprehensive narrative. And this is arguably why he was able to look at the cross supplant the idea from the year 8033 to his own present situation and see a similar situation occurring in which Jesus was in a sense being crucified by Bonhoeffer's very culture again. The second response to the question at hand, which again is, who is Dietrich Bonhoeffer for us today, is that Dietrich Bonhoeffer is an existentialist, if not in the name of formal philosophical distinction, then by the way of the character of his pastoral task to the universal church. As we read him, we get the sense that we ought to live fuller lives in the here and now, much like an existentialist philosopher might persuade us to do as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer seemed to recognize and agree with one of the charges that Friedrich Nietzsche had levied against Christianity, which was that essentially in becoming too pious, Christians had forgotten to become people, men women of the earth who belonged to the world whose lives could mean something in the here and now bonhoeffer himself affirmed the value of the life that grant that god had granted him on earth not simply as a pretext to disembodied heavily existence as many christian thinkers might otherwise believe but rather as something meaningful in itself and i would imagine that dietrich bonhoeffer would agree with the idea that Eternal life is not something necessarily to be attained after the conclusion of this life. Eternal life is rather to be attained and can be lived out within the context of this very life itself. Because eternal life does not necessarily speak to the time span or the expanse of one's life, but rather the quality of one's life. This idea actually has biblical support in the book of John, Jesus' high priestly prayer, in uh, John chapter 17, in which Jesus says this, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus does not identify eternal life, again, as life without end, as many people might otherwise think it is. He rather says that eternal life 
consists in the knowledge that you have, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the Father, the knowledge of the Son, which leads me to think, and I wonder, and I suppose that Bonhoeffer would agree with the idea that eternal life is not simply life with endless expanse, but rather life with a different kind of quality, and that quality can be had in the here and now. As a writer and theologian with an existentialist bend, we must read Bonhoeffer as someone who calls us back to the world in ways that purely rationalistic thinkers do not. Bonhoeffer impresses on us not merely the invitation, but also the imperativeness of living secular lives. This means throwing ourselves into the life of this world, believing this to be the earth to which God's kingdom will one day come. This means, in short, living as though God cares just as much about the present as he does about the eternity to come, even if at the present he appears to be missing and forgotten, the God of weakness. The third response that I propose to the question at hand, which again is, who is Dietrich Bonhoeffer for us today, is this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the embodiment of what it means to have faith. This is the lesson that he learned throughout his life, up through the final few months. And I'll close with this. It's the full version, or at least the unabridged version, of the letter he wrote to Eberhard Betke just nine months before his death on July 21st, 1944. He says this, I discovered later, and I'm still discovering right up to this moment, that it is only by living completely in this world that one learns to have faith. One must completely abandon any attempt to make something of oneself, whether it be a saint or a converted sinner or a churchman, a so-called priestly type, a righteous man or an unrighteous man, a sick man or a healthy one. By this worldliness, which is a term that Bonhoeffer had used in previous writings, by this worldliness, I mean living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes, and failures, experiences, and perplexities. In doing so, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God, taking seriously not our own sufferings, but those of God in the world, watching with Christ in Gethsemane. That, I think, is faith. That is metanoia, which is the Greek word for repentance. And that is how one becomes a man and a Christian. Thank you to everyone for listening to this episode of the Hidden Philosophy Podcast. I would just like to take this opportunity to let all of my listeners know that here in just a few weeks, I will be beginning uh, a new podcast that I will be primarily doing on my own without Will, who normally does the podcast with me. The name of this podcast will be Just Give Me a Few Seconds to Think. So be on the lookout for future announcements concerning this podcast. And if you like the Hidden Philosophy Podcast, don't forget to give my new podcast, Just Give Me a Few Seconds to Think, a listen. Thank you.